Hello, everybody, and welcome to PSA number 12. It's privacy, surveillance, anonymity. PSA today number 12. It is Wednesday, July 8th, and I am here with Kalia Young, identity woman, and a special guest that she is going to introduce. Kalia? Yeah, we're here with um, James Felton Keith, who um, recently um, was in a campaign, a primary campaign for Congress out in New York. And he had some pretty interesting platform ideas that um, have been picked up. So we wanted to have him come on the show and share more. Welcome, James. Welcome, Thanks James. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Uh, what uh Oh, it's early in the morning over there, right? You are you you're both in California. It's ten a.m. ten a.m. ish here. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's early. Uh, got a full day already in New York. Oh yeah, it feels like the end of the day to me. Uh, yeah, what is it? One twenty-two. Um, yeah, I've been on conference calls all day, and yeah, I've been mainly ra- winding down the political campaign. So yeah, our election was just June twenty-third, and uh, you know, as our my first time running and my team's first time running, but we, we gobbled up 25% of the vote, which, yeah, it sort of shocked the party. Uh, it didn't shock us mainly because we were running the data on the district, but uh, a lot of journalists are talking about this district being a, a battleground now. So can you step back a little bit? Tell us about the district. Tell us about the vote. Sure. The platform. Uh, so yeah, the district is New York's 13th district for now, but you know we're having a census this year, so a lot of the districts will change next year, uh, just from a, a mapping or gerrymandering standpoint. And my district is mostly Harlem. It's everything in Manhattan above Central Park, or really above 96th Street, uh, and a little piece of the Bronx above Fordham Road, where Fordham University is, uh, called Kingsbridge. And... Um, Per the census, we're about 720,000 people, but per toilet flush data, we think we're closer to 780,000 people. It's just some of the data we run to try to figure out who actually exists because there's bad data uh, around everyone. And um, yeah, we we ran a campaign uh, around income and equity. Uh, obviously, we had all the I'm a progressive. So we had all the regular progressive staples, housing, health care, education, climate action, uh, racial justice, you name it. But uh, our spin on what we thought was most important in our district, aside from housing, which is always an issue in a city like New York, was really people's ability to generate income in a, in a dignified way. And so we spent most of the campaign talking to people about what they're owed from this economy, from this time, or as we like to sum it up, uh, we owe us, which was our campaign slogan that sort of um, captured, at least we think, the the imagination of a lot of people in the district, but also a lot of national uh, players. You know, we, we got a lot of fanfare from like the Young Turks and Democracy Now! and the, the NBCs and CNNs of the world. And so we think... Uh, that the the relative success, even though we didn't win the campaign, uh, has opened up a door to have new conversations about um, about our economic space, our political space, uh, our sociocultural space, and also how tech is influencing all those things. So it's been uh, it's been a hell of a year. It's been a pretty stressful year. 
uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I heard you say that one of the one of the issues with COVID was that because everybody had to stay at home, you couldn't get in front of voters, right? Yeah. Well, I, I also I got really sick. Uh, I feel a bit guilty about it because I got sick uh, at the beginning of March. I think it was. I remember I had a a public event at a Democratic club up here. And if people aren't familiar, outside of how presidential candidates get big endorsements from you know state officials. On the local level, a lot of Democratic clubs, district leaders, people on the ground really run how you get out the vote. And so their endorsements are really more beneficial than, say, Bernie Sanders' uh, endorsement. I mean, Bernie might be good for fundraising, but these people make votes happen. Anyway, I was with about 200 of those people, a lot of them older people, and we were all making jokes about coronavirus. And I was basically trying to communicate that I was willing to, you know, engage people because in our politics over here, a lot of politicians don't make it out to shake hands, et cetera. And so everyone was like, we appreciate you for coming out. And I was like, yeah, if if Corona's coming, it's getting me, it's getting me too. We were all joking. The whole crowd was laughing. It was sort of how I entered this particular speech. And two days later, I was sick. And I Uh-oh. felt, Yeah. And it felt horrible, but I was down for the count for a good three months and sort of Oof. just came back to life at the beginning of June. And But even if I weren't, a, a lot of other politicos in the area weren't able to really get out and interact with voters or really even get out the vote. And New York is a really unique beast because we don't live in houses. We all live in buildings. And the old the job is to go build in the building, work your way in, you know, hit each door. It's different than if I lived in you know, Ohio or Michigan where I could walk up to each house. And so if you try to go into these buildings now, you know, you look like a lunatic and you look like you know a dangerous person. So they're the political optics of it, plus the door people don't want to let you in. Yeah. Um, so it really changed uh, how electoral politics works in, in New York, COVID-19, because we all had to stay home. I'm I'm. I'm pretty here. I'm locked up in a box right now. And we all live in really tiny spaces <laughs> for really high prices. So, so yeah, you know, that that threw us off a bit. And so the campaign, we stopped campaigning at the beginning of March. And I announced the campaign suspension. And you still got 25% of the vote. Yeah, well, I think that just shows that there is a real uh, uh, want for for change, not only changing policies, but changing faces. And uh, so the work going forward, if we're you know able to run again, will be, you know, trying to find another 25%. Uh, but yeah, we were, I was shocked. I, I thought we would do decent, but I didn't think that, you know, we'd get um, the amount of votes that, that we got. And uh, yeah, I guess it shows people were paying attention. A lot of people were going to the website so digital strategy really changed. And luckily, we had a lot of collateral on the internet. And those last two or three days, we really saw web traffic pick up. And it correlated uh, pretty clearly to to voter turnout. So, you know. But I think mostly people just, they like the platform. What we find is about, at least if our data is correct on pitting the people who visited the site with the people who actually walked to the ballot box. It looks like anyone who saw our platform 
like the platform. So tell um, tell us more about that platform and, and the the sure. the data parts and the yeah. data. Parts. So well, yeah, so I, like I said, it's, it's a pretty standard progressive platform. You know, the number one issues here are mainly you know housing, education, and um, and like social justice reforms. But then right behind that are you know things like healthcare and, and climate action, you name it. Uh, but our our core policy, the risk that we took, was our number one policy that we communicated most was a universal uh, basic income or guaranteed income. And the way we derived that policy uh, is, I think, a little bit different than how people are normally talking about basic income as a tax. And just to, I guess, back up a bit and, and communicate how we ran the campaign on this policy is when a lot of people talk about basic income, they talk about a tax program and tax money is money that's already in the system, right? And we're trying to trap that money to do a few things with it, you know, pay for infrastructure, maybe pay for social safety net and welfare programs. And in a, a lot of the cases of the people who were advocating for basic income, they were saying, take some of that money and pay for basic income. And my problem with all of that is really my general problem with democratic politics and how they talk about working people or the working class as sort of their target voter. And it's no knock, you know, working people uh, are the girth of the voting population. But I think it fails to acknowledge people who don't find themselves in that class or people who aren't working at all, homeless people, people in abject poverty, you name it. And so we rolled out a program called a data dividend that uh, essentially looked at data as an input to corporate productivity. To be clear, I look at data, all data is personal data or derivative of personal data. And so I looked at the 5.3 million companies that exist in this country and the fact that they all made about $7.2 trillion in profits last year. So to be clear, profits is what corporations are left with after they pay taxes, right? So it's not revenues. Normally, when I talk about revenues um, or productivity, excuse me, I'm also talking about revenues. Productivity and revenues are one and the same from a corporate standpoint. And so our argument is that because individuals' data is the core input to all corporate productivity, and to break that down a little bit more, corporations, they only make two types of things. They make products, stuff you can touch, or services, stuff you can't touch. And they do that with two types of data, employee data or consumer data. But it all comes from one of those sources. And as that is a fact, we think that of the $7.2 trillion that companies were left over with at the end, instead of them paying it all out into a dividend to shareholders, that th per this policy, we create a new class of stakeholders that would be entitled to half of that dividend. And just to go one more level deeper, uh, of the $7.2 trillion, that corporations made in this country alone in the last year alone, about 25% of that money is usually set aside for R&D, hiring new employees, you name it. But the other 75% of that money, which is about $5.3 trillion, goes right out into a dividend of many sorts to shareholders. So again, our argument is for half of that, which would be around $2.6, $2.7 trillion in a basic income uh, per that annual productivity. And that would in fact be more than 
the tax plans that other politicians have have rolled out. And that policy was really important because it allowed us an opportunity to talk to people at the base level of our community and democratic politics to say, this is money that you're in fact owed. And that was new for a lot of people in our district. Number one, I was telling them about an asset that they didn't realize they owned. And number two, we were trying to tell them about money that they were owed from this asset that they didn't realize they owned. And that conversation alone was a really big opportunity for us. It not only differentiated me from my political opponents, but really from everyone else in the political sphere. And it not only excited a bunch of young people who are you know, systematically poor than their uh, parents' generation. I'm thinking about people a day younger than me. Uh, but it also excited a bunch of older folks who wanted to, who are, you know, fearful of the changing employment landscape and are looking for, I guess I would say, a dignified way to identify um, their their next type of income. And so this conversation about people being old is, is different than I think the headlines that we've seen with universal basic income, which are normally using language like give. I think about Andrew Yang's campaign, for instance, a lot of the headlines is Andrew Yang wants to give, keyword, you $1,000 a month. And I don't think anyone, American or otherwise, wants to be given the money just for you know giving sake. I think a lot of people will take it because they need it. But you know, political leadership is more more so, in my opinion, about reconciliation than anything else. And our inability to tell people that they can reconcile where this funds come from and why they're a valuable participant in society is uh, is is a real political opportunity. And I think one we should take uh, more seriously than the mechanics of distributing the money that's already in the system per taxes. I know that was a mouthful, but that's <laughs> that's really what we were running on. Uh, the money we owe us, or what uh, I should say we owe us. So, can you, talk, can you talk more about that asset class, this idea that we're owed money that we have contributed? Sort of like, you know, when you talk about 5 million companies with $7 trillion of profits, is the the logic here that a certain percentage of those profits is coming off of the backs of our data that we're generating? Totally. Well, the logic is that 100% of it is coming off of our data. But at that point, I don't think that we're necessarily entitled to the entire market value, right, of productivity. So if I invite you to the table of productivity, I say, I'm a, I'm an employer, you're an employee, I'm going to pay you a retainer for your time to come hang out with me. Well, let's call that a wage, because that is, in fact, what a wage is. And we both pour in some input to that table. When we leave that table, if it is still productive, if what we've created is truly productive and it carries on after we leave, another conversation should be had post-wage about what you're owed from that productivity. I think the problem in the way the world is working right now is the people who own the contracts that own the institutions or the products that institutions make, I should say goods that institutions make, because they could be products or services, uh, those people take all of the residual and after effect productivity. And as a result, it's left too many people in the population without any real equity stake in productivity. And again, I'm not an egalitarian. 
I'm not a democratic socialist or a socialist or a communist or any other old term from broken European systems that ended us all in war. But I am, I am a proponent of acknowledging individuals' existence fully and being able to distribute uh, their intrinsic value to them and doing it in a, in a tangible way. I think you, normally when you use terms like intrinsic value, I think people think about abstractions. But I mean, I can prove everyone's value. I can put it on a spreadsheet tomorrow, bit by bit. So to answer your question, thinking about the $7.2 trillion that's left, this is really an equity stake paid out to shareholders or the shareholder class based on the risk that they took to invest in companies early. And they should, you know, reap some benefits for that. I'm saying they're reaping too many benefits too fast for that. This is the difference between a really wealthy person making a million dollars in a week and making it in a year. So the thing I'm saying is the, the data that stems from human beings, from individuals at the end of the day, is the core input to all of their productivity and they owe us some of that productivity which in this case or 2019's case is about 7.2 trillion dollars and uh i think it's better distributed as a guaranteed income to participants of sorts right now than a sort of individual stake which we do have and i think at least the technology to parse out every person and the reason for that is is really the idea that our our personal data isn't ours alone, right? So we are reflections of our communities. We are reflections of our families. And to further elaborate on that, I would sort of play with the the paradoxical nature of personal data and in the thought experiment that suggests that my mother's date of birth, which must be on my birth certificate, is personal data about me per the documentation of my birth certificate. But my mother's date of birth is also her date of birth. It's her personal data. And so as we are interconnected or as if, you know, Kalia and I were to get together at the table of productivity and sort of noodle on uh, the way the world should work later and, and literature comes out of that, other things come out of that. You know, I'm, I'm writing a book right now. I'm going to reference her book in that. A, a very healthy argument could be made that I would owe her a little bit. Uh, of that. And again, in a lot of these cases, it might be a micro amount. But when you look across the tens of thousands of institutions that we interact with daily, those numbers start to you know, become pretty sizable. They start to look like the consensus amount, which is about $1,000 a month to start. Uh, the other place that is scalable. So if the economy is better next year than it was last year, we make $10 trillion in profits the argument would be natural that we should make more than that thousand dollars a month. Uh, so, so yes, I'm saying uh, the the shareholder class owes the stakeholder class some more money, and uh, I don't think they're aware of it. I don't think they're bad people. I know a lot of folks in the shareholder class. I'm one of those people, but I know that every company that I've ever started, I've owned way too much of. I just don't have the mechanism to distribute that ownership out better. And uh, I think in this modern era, we actually have that mechanism, which radically differentiates us from the 20th century political and economic philosophies that guided us. And so we have to do the work to um, 
tell better stories about uh, how those funds should be distributed. And I, I take it you're not a big fan of stock buybacks. Uh, n- not in the way that they've been used, right? So stock buybacks were always sort of a necessary tool and, and markets are available for, for necessary, you know, for those necessary tools to be exercised. But, you know, using stock buybacks to protect what some would call the integrity of companies and also using those to pay executives whose compensation is just based on that number going up over the calendar year or the quarter or you name it is dangerous. But again, all of these stock buybacks have been around for a long while and they were a tool that could be used in tech, protect the integrity of the company that might be under attack from an activist investor or a variety of other scenarios. So uh, I think regulation around how those things are used is necessary. And I don't think it uh, crass to suggest that uh, public legislators should should be impressing upon their their ethical and political will on, on private operators, which would be people who run companies. So, no, I'm not a fan. Not right now and how they use, but I don't think that the the mechanics of the tool should should go away. I think it, it should always be an option. But there lies the danger of, you know, we have to sort of win the political argument around what is ethical and what is not so that we can use tools as they are intentioned. Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't think that guns are necessarily a bad thing, but I'm against them being in everyone's hands. You know, I could say the same thing about hammers, et cetera. I just uh, smashed my nail the other week. And I was mad at the hammer actually for a little while after I smashed this, my middle fingernail. But um, I got over it. And realize it's a tool that I should probably still use it at some point for some things. So <laughs> I don't know if that was an adequate answer. Yeah, yeah I guess I want to. So in the context of, of this podcast, we talk a lot about privacy. Sure. Right. And, and we talk about um, the flip side of privacy is surveillance mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a future where we can be anonymous um, because being anonymous um, is under our own control, where we're not known by others. We're only known by those that we want to know us, and, and we want to share our data with those that we want to share our data with, and we want to be anonymous to those that we want to be anonymous to, and that's yeah. a, a form of power. Um, and so when we talked last week about the Data Dividend Project, it was very specific about um, how does the data that we generate individually um, generate value for others. And so what I'm trying to kind of parse in kind mm-hmm. of understanding what you're saying is how do we connect that, which is um, my online behavior, my search history, uh, my intention data of what I want to buy, where and when, from whom, sure. that's monetizable, right? That That's surveillance capitalism. That's what Google and Facebook and others have built enormous, you know, almost, you know, trillion dollar market caps off of. Um, in terms of giving me, quote unquote, something for free, um, where ultimately I become um, more like the product and less like the customer. And I want to square that with this idea of productivity, which seems a little bit more all-encompassing. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so I hear you loud and clear, and I've never been 
the privacy guy uh, per se. And it will clear those stuff. That's why we connected because I'm not a privacy yeah. lady either. Like, yeah, but I mean, but it is a, it's a conversation that has to be had, right? Because that's where that's where we are. As a, like, that's where the political lexicon is. I'll say briefly, I think privacy lawyers, corporate privacy lawyers have sort of run amok in making it uh, individuals' conversations, which I don't know that it that it totally is. But I do agree with you, uh, Seth, in that there is, a, there is a power in being able to say who gets to know you, how, and when. Um, so all of that said, and I'm not very familiar with the Data Dividend Project. I'm not associated with it. I think that's, you know, Yang's people uh, playing with language that we made up, and we're happy to have them do it. I think I wish everyone was around here talking about a data dividend. Um, but as that is is the case, I think our data, it gets in these philosophical ideas about if we truly have an intrinsic value. And I would say this, my sort of broader philosophy that I like to call inclusionism stems on three core principles. And I think they inform privacy or how we should be considering it. And the first is that people do in fact have an intrinsic value. The second piece is that we only derive that value from interactions with each other. And third and finally is that we are owed some equity in the value that proliferates from those interactions with each other. And the thought experiment that I like most for this philosophy is the idea that if you were born into an empty white frictionless space, that you would in fact have no value of note and there'll be no data as a result to make it a, a fact. But the minute that you have to react to other entities in the world, value starts to proliferate at the very least because you are reacting to those other entities. And it plays on the analogy that value is like that of energy. It cannot be created or destroyed, but can change form. And it's really the idea that data like matter is transacted, which is similar to friction. And that value becomes this very tangible, real thing that proliferates in the same way that energy does. So one more time, data is matter. Data is not the new oil. It is everything that matters. We will put a data point on every moving particle in the multiverse at some point. Transactions are friction and value is energy. And when we play that into what overall privacy uh, provides us with, I would say we're in an interesting space and time where we're building more tech and more legislation. To be clear, I think tech is software stuff. We Transactions are friction. Let's Transactions are friction. Yep. And uh, value is energy. So data, matter, transactions, friction, value, energy. Um, and as... And did you come up with this or is this from somebody else's framework? Oh, so on me. I'm, I'm just... Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so... This will be in the next book, actually, uh, by the way. But it's in an old book that I wrote in 2017 as well. But uh, but so I think when we play that on the privacy, um, and we we definitely want I like data protection as a as a catalyst, and I like you know I was early a early sort of uh, submitter and author of versions of the General Data Protection Regulation and Singapore's Personal Data Protection Regulation because I think protection or agency allows us to do exactly what, what you mentioned earlier, which is cut on and off who gets access to us and how. But the actual value that proliferates from us or the productivity, to put it in corporate terms, 
right? Value being more philosophical and productivity being more corporate. When those things proliferate, it is because we do those things in community, right? We do whatever they are and we don't necessarily need to sell data or intentionally provide data. You know, I think we, we see women, uh, to use a, a bit of a crass analogy, in a way right now that we never have before because we see them all in one big data pool together. And like I, I regularly ride the three train here on uh, 6th in Manhattan and I live up in Harlem and it goes all the way down to, to Wall Street and there are adverts normally for a bunch of different underwear lines in uh, women's underwear lines in the, in the train. And the underwear, it, this particular brand, it comes in different colors, right? From very light to very dark and in different shapes and sizes. And I can't help but think that's a new thing, that we see all of these women existing in their different shades, in different shapes and sizes, because it is a data pool. If I'm looking for all you know, Black women of a, a certain size, et cetera, I'm not looking for one on Facebook. I'm looking for a class of them to validate a market must proliferate. And then I'm trying to answer that demand. But that data occurs intrinsically. It is a naturally occurring resource. So I like to look at data as a natural resource that we build out together. And yes, uh, certain direct actors uh, should have to request access uh, to us. But you know there are different sorts of degrees of data and data classes, or excuse me, data types that would sort of extract our being from us to make sure that they can meet the the very necessary demand that we have for essential things like say underwear. So um, I am pro more data protection legislation and tools to allow us to do that. I think we should be building all tools with that in mind. Uh, but an outright privacy advocate, I, I would never say that I am. When I think about the oldest sorts of human civilizations, I think we were always tribal and we, we've been able to survive, which I think is the, the sort of spice of life. I'm not one of those people who believes that humans can have nature, but if anything close to nature exists, I think it would just be survival. And part of that survival, we've always done so by being in close proximity to each other, by being able to let each other know about threats to our existence. And that is that is not something that is riddled in privacy. I think that the hyper-privacy advocates who are out there who only understand it as this rigid thing are so very privileged that they don't in fact need the humanity around them. And it makes me think about the, the large walls that I saw being built around private residents when I lived in Johannesburg, South Africa. And it made me think about my own neighborhood that I grew up in, in Detroit, where you could walk across any lawn if you wanted to. You might get in trouble for doing it in the wrong way. But therein lies some community because the lady next door who might give you a whooping would tell your mom, you know, I spanked your kid because he was walking across my lawn in cleats. And um, maybe spanking is overboard, but I'm not against sort of getting in trouble by the neighbor. So I think we need to get back to that. And I think the conversation about privacy as a in a silo is dangerous. And it 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 lessens uh, the community that we absolutely need. And I think we're even seeing in this coronavirus era that we're we're desperate for. So so yeah, I, I try to separate those, but um, I think we can actually get better privacy principles 
if we give people more authority over their data protection and as a result, their uh, ability to accrue capital from the productivity of that data. Um, so we sort of have to have, at least at the intellectual and policy side, the academic and policy side, we have to have those detailed conversations. The external communication, I think, is, is pretty simple. You should have agency and you should get paid for it. Everyone doesn't want to tumble down the rabbit hole with us and they shouldn't have to, but they should know that they're owed something and that if they say stop or I want to cut the lights out in the bathroom, that they should go out and they shouldn't be worried that they're not out. And it should be a hell of a price to pay for uh, violating someone's um, someone's authority over um, their privacy. Did I go to left field there or... No, it's great. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you for sharing. I hadn't really put the dots together about, um, like I've I've known you for a few years now, and you're actually the one of the reasons that I have the book coming out. Um, it came out um, a couple weeks ago, so um, and I hadn't really fully understood until this conversation now about the the discussion around how the economic lifeblood of the economy is data like like and and actually money is a form of information right like and what you're talking about is like and there's this this form of information called money but now there's this whole other sets of information that are about all sorts of other things that are also feeding the economy. And if those that information wasn't flowing, none of you would be making these profits. So, and I really like the frame of like a that we're all stakeholders yeah. that are contributing to that economic engine running and that we're owed. And and I, I hadn't it hadn't connected the dots. So I'm really appreciative that we're having this conversation that it's making sense to me. Um so can I can I ask you about like a, a selfish question, which is about um like what 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 inspired you to like um start the personal data series with Colette and like why did you pick my book to to open it up? Sure. Um well it was really, you know, it's just sort of Opportunities just sort of compound on themselves. And it's really like uh, a credit to Colette's genius. She is, in my opinion, sort of a process and pedagogical mastermind. And her her focus is really international relations. And I met her through a, another group really talking about how we change the conversation around politics, leadership, and reconciliation. And I think she had come to a few of our data union events and it made sense to her, like her ability to understand stuff that's outside of her uh, subject matter expertise is uncanny. Cause I'm usually, like, I stay in my lane. I try not to do stuff too far away from me. Cause I'm like, I don't want to sound stupid on here. Anyway, she never does. So she knows people in the publishing space and she met the publishers at, at Anthem but, you know, she's an academic. She's at NYU. She knows everybody. And she's like, we should do a series 
on ethics of personal data and we can cover everything by personal data, most people will start thinking it's about tech. But as we tumble down the rabbit hole of what personal data is, they'll think it's about everything. And so she hit me with that idea. And that was, I can't even remember when that was. It was a while ago. And I was just doing my regular thing here in New York, having a lot of conversations with a lot of people, telling them I think we're going to start publishing a book series. And just, I was trying to see who thought, whose interesting stuff was out there. And then you came up like twice. And I was like, oh yeah, so perfect. Because even when I was trying to start this data trade association before the data union, I remember again, people bringing me back to you and going like, she's the the OG, the original. And I tried to do that in, in yeah. 2010, yeah. Right. So So there was that piece, but then there was also when you came back with what you were writing uh, with, you know, the domains of identity, I needed that, but we've got like four books lined up to, to come out after yours, but that book needed to be first because it needed to establish uh, sort of an initial methodological structure for what identity is. Now, if people, you know, riffed on it and amended and make it something different later, fine, whatever, who cares? But we needed to start with what identity is because I think too often people differentiate data from our identity. And so I, I thought your book needed to be first. And this is what I was communicating to Colette because it would sort of set the table for the arguments that we wanted to have around personal data later. So before we can go into what data is, we got to establish what identity is. And Colette liked it. And really the, the book series piece is really, I mean, she's quarterbacking it and I'm just trying to sort of, you know, feed her the ball because I've, I've developed a lot of these relationships over time. Um, so that's really sort of how that came about. And then there, you know, there is the diversity piece. A lot of the people that we've been putting up, uh, their books, they're, they're all women with the exception of me. Um, you know, and I just felt like sort of that was that was necessary. I, in the personal data space, I met a lot of white men over the years, great guys, some not as great as others. And I'm regularly found myself in those rooms as the singular brown face. Maybe I met one or two other guys over times that, you know, one was a musician or whatever. You know, I'm like, all right, that guy does music about data. Who cares? <laughs> and then you were the only woman there, you know, again, with the exception of a few others. And before I got to this space, I, I spent a lot of time writing and sort of jousting with a bunch of transhumanist thinkers and writers. Again, another space is just sort of me and, a you know, a bunch of German guys. Again, great guys, some better than others. And so I just thought there's this woman who is sort of really sort of trailblazing and nobody knows. And I can certainly relate to that. The only thing that really brought me to these data conversations is being this, you know, black queer kid from Detroit. I just felt like I was doing a lot of cool work in the world and not getting enough back for it. And so I started down the personal data trail because I was trying to validate my own existence and pay me. And I thought, yeah, sure, in that process, we can get everybody else done. But, you know, at the end of the day, I like me. I think, you know, I think I'm cooler than uh, than other people think I am. And per that, I think I think you're cooler than other people think you are. And so the main thing is 
being a politician, I guess in some capacity, also being in marketing and PR, I just thought this is the person that we have to put out front first before we go into, we got a bunch of book submissions from, again, that transhumanist crowd about wonky topics and they have no context. So Mm -hmm. identity first, yeah, contextualize everything else. So that's really where it came from. And, And Colette really, she also, this, you know, extraordinary lady, she helped distill a lot of that. Because early days, I was I was sort of talking. I was all over the place, you know. Yeah. I had a lot, and I couldn't get it all out. And Colette was like, "Let's do it in this way," and and she sort of set those stones in place. And and is still doing that. I was just on an email with her earlier today, and she's sort of guiding some of the next books that are going to come in. We're going to play domains of identity into international relations in conflict. So we're going to play it in the. Kosovo. We're going to play it into women's issues in India. We're going to play it into uh, things happening here per the Black Lives Matter movement. We're going to try to use domains of identity to reintroduce gender and race as uh, separate and consistent uh, sort of bodies of literature in the international relations space, which apparently they used to be about 100 years ago, but are not right now. And it's really, mm-hmm. really problematic when we start looking at place and how people are included in places um, without being totally seen. And well, we know now that they, they sort of can't be included unless they're fully seen. And so, again, it all comes back to what is identity? Who are we identifying? How are we including them? So, yeah, yeah I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't totally a hat trick. You you had the right stuff, and we we needed we needed this to sort of set the table. Um, yeah, and so it has. Yeah, you can, you can. It's you great. Got, I mean, I got a, a, the books out yeah. now, and apparently yesterday it was yeah. in the top ten of security and privacy books on it Amazon. Was. So yeah. hopefully. I, we'll put a link in the notes so folks can go buy it if they want. We at the yes, last week's podcast, we were just at the end, and I just was talking about the book coming out, and then it, everything we oh, ended good. rapidly. So <laughs> touch on it again. Yeah. Um, do you have any last questions, Seth? No, this is great. I've learned a lot. It's great to meet you. That's great to meet you. Great, to and it's great. To, I just I like your formulation. I like how you talk about it. It makes me think that um, I, I like this idea that um, that privacy is not standalone. That that we have to think about um, almost like privacy cooperatives, like the totally. like communities that 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 band together, that establish their agency as a community, and 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 are known amongst each other, but are private outside. Totally. I mean, we should think about it in sort of this network of tribes, networks of communities, collectives, unions. Uh, I think this is the new language. And it's, I think the cool thing about right now is sort of the reverse engineering of humanity or our existence down to the data points is actually, I think, the opposite of how a lot of people are thinking about tech. They're thinking we're being dehumanized, but actually we're being identified. And I think it's going to provide us an opportunity to come back to being very human again, because if if I'm looking, you know, as the person that I am at the last 200 years or the last 500 years, sort of post feudalism, 
right, where capitalism was allowed to proliferate, I think, because monarchs couldn't distribute resources well enough. A lot of crazy things happen. You know, good things happen, bad things happen. America happened. Slavery happened. You know, but slavery was existing before that. The point is, I think we're finally at a point where we can identify humans in such a rigid way that if we think back to our morals and or ethical stances and truly think that humans are valuable or that they have an intrinsic value, and we try to honor that, we can codify how we honor that per the data points. And I think live in a more humane space, a more equitable space. Uh, again, I, I doubt we'll ever live in an egalitarian space because like if Beyonce was on this call right now, she'd probably blow us all out of the water because she's running around on hills and singing and doing stuff. So I'm not saying I'm worth whatever she's worth, but she's probably making too much money. And when she does a stage show uh, playing with a band behind her that looks like the university that I went to for undergrad, I'm thinking she sort of owes the culture a bit, but we don't have a mechanism for her to give me my money back, you know? Because when I was a kid and she wasn't famous, I think I was cooler than Beyonce. At 18, I was definitely, I definitely had more friends than she was. And it, <laughs> but um, no, that, that's all I got. I will say one more thing though uh, to Kalia, I guess, while we're here. So, uh, one of the the ads from this new book that I'm writing, it'll be called Personal Data of the People's Natural Resource. Ooh, and I like that title. You want to play with, yeah, yeah. The subtitle is the natural resource part, but the first part is just plain old personal data. Yeah. But so on top of the domains of identity, what I'm trying to build is, is five separate um, degrees of data. And they basically differ based on how data is distributed and the knowledge of the person. Right. So you, know, you have like your social media stuff that comes directly from you, right? You know you're giving it and you know it's being used. And you have again increasing degrees of data where either you're giving, like the first three is data being pushed out from you, right? And you have lessening degrees of knowledge of how it's being harvested. Right. And then the last two degrees are data being extracted from you and you having lessening degrees of how it is being harvested. The yep. the or the last degree is basically stuff like genomic data. Like if I had both of your parents' genome sequence, I may not necessarily need you at all. I could derive you. Right. Uh, the math is pretty straightforward these days on how to do that. So, but that would still, again, be data about, that's still personal data that comes mm -hmm. back to you. And if, you know, innovations of sorts happen based on that data, there needs to be a space for you to not only be indemnified, but also be able to clap back from a privacy standpoint. If we think about uh, things like eugenics or even um, uh, scenarios where broader society tries to impress upon disabled people to change. You know, I've, I was with a bunch of disabled activists a few months ago in my political campaign, and they were like, look, nothing's wrong with us. You don't need to fix us. I'm like this and I don't want to bend over backwards to have my legs changed, just like you don't want to bend over backwards to have a nose job. And I was like, you know what? That's great. I actually might not mind a nose job, but i that's my prerogative. And I think you should be able to have yours. And so these sort of conversations about permissions and privacy come into play there as, as much as they do uh, around how medical and academic staff use this sort of genomic data just to stay on, on topic to create new innovations in, in pharmaceuticals and you name it. Um, 
So there's an economic piece uh, as well. And anyway, that's what we'll be talking about in the book. And um, the next one will be the IR one. And then there's some other interesting ones coming. But they'll probably all be referencing the domains of identity for people to people to rift on that. But yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for... Yeah. Thank you for putting together the book series and and inviting my book to be the the opening one in that that arc of of work. And I'm really excited to learn more about all the other authors and what they're doing. And maybe we'll have them on this show too, because it's all on these themes. Yeah. And and super congratulations on your congressional mm-hmm. um your congressional primary that turned out given the circumstances we're in pretty good. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks. No, thanks. I actually had to have someone tell me that it was good. I was a little bit depressed at first, but, uh, you know, you always want to win. But but you're right. I think, you know, we're, we're doing the work. We're making some progress. We're changing the narrative. We're adding to the literature. And that is, I think, the most we can do with, with our time. So we're, you know, we're doing it. Yeah. yeah. Exciting. All Thank right. you for your time. That was great. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Okay. Signing off today, PSA Today, Privacy, Surveillance, Anonymity. Um, on behalf of Kalia Young and Seth Goldstein, um, thank you, James Felton Keith. And um, have a good week, everybody. Take care. Love it.